Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. IP16 is a constitutional ballot measure that would create an integrated open primary. People feel like our democracy is in peril. We know that it's about 68% of Oregonians feel like our system of democracy is in peril. I mean, that's a profound figure. We need to reclaim our trailblazer status. It's really a great legacy in Oregon to build off of, and it's high time that we adopt open primaries. The lawyers of Harang Long PC have represented clients in Oregon's political and policymaking arenas for decades. We have worked on some of the most consequential public policy matters in modern Oregon history for both public and private sector clients. Our lawyers combine strategic savvy with technical expertise to navigate the legal, political, and governmental landscape in pursuit of our clients' goals. To learn more about how Harang Long can help you achieve your goals, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, Michael Calcano, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a true honor. I am a listener of the show, and I am so deeply grateful for the work that you two do to bring this platform to all of Oregon. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very kind kind way to start the podcast. So I was looking a little bit about your background. So you worked as a communications director for the Secretary of State. I put, was that Secretary Richardson? Yes. Okay. You served on the board of Mount Hood Community College. You've also been a news reporter and journalist. So tell us how you ended up on the All Oregon Votes campaign. And then we'll get into a little bit more about the what the campaign actually does. But how did you arrive to the campaign? Sure. Well, ever since I became an elected official uh, serving as a school board member for Mount Hood Community College, I've cared a lot about policy in Oregon. I want to help see my native state do better and be better. And I want to see all Oregonians thrive and flourish. And that was my reason for running for the school board at Mount Hood Community College to support upward mobility and the American dream. And I then transitioned into working for the Secretary of State because I care a lot about integrity and ethics and transparency in government. Being a former journalist, I think that it's really important that we have accountability for those in power. And I have been engaged in Oregon politics ever since. And so how I came to All Oregon Votes is simply wanting to support a very important effort at a very important time in our history. Okay, so I will transition us now then to the actual measure itself. The term Mm. open primaries means different things to different people. It looks different in different states where it's been acted. So all Oregon votes, that's the name of the campaign. Can you describe what the proposal that you all are supporting in Oregon actually looks like? What does it actually do? IP16 is a constitutional ballot measure that would create an integrated open primary. Essentially, the partisan primary is right now a closed system, and that partisan primary 
it restricts independents from participating, and it segregates voters. So voters can't vote for the person. They have to vote down that party ticket. And so IP16 would create a common ballot primary in which all of the candidates compete head-to-head in a pick-one style primary, and all of the voters would be able to vote. So right now, 41.5% of all registered voters in Oregon, they're not wearing a party jersey, and they're restricted from having voting rights that Democrats and Republicans have. So open primary, everyone can vote, anyone can run. Party name appears next to candidate on the ballot, I'm assuming. So IP16 is a constitutional amendment, and it's five sentences long. And we haven't dived into complex statutory provisions within the text of our ballot measure. And so how candidates appear on the ballot would be a decision that state lawmakers get to make through a public process. Okay, got it. And then would it be two candidates to the general election? IP16 doesn't specify the exact number of candidates who should advance from the primary to the general election. It simply says that the closed partisan primary system isn't working and should be phased out, and we should usher in a new era for Oregon democracy where we have an integrated open primary in which the top candidates advance. Top two, top three, top four, top five, the legislature gets to make these decisions once voters pass IP16. So I think one of the things that whenever we talk about voting reform or or whatever you want to kind of categorize it as is there's a lot of challenges, both because Ben's political party wants everybody to vote, whether they want to or not. And my political party doesn't really want anyone voting, but if we have to <laughs> allow people to vote and just be fair. That was that was sarcasm. But but I will say there's some in my party. So backing up. I think that and have seen a lot of evidence that Oregon elections, as they're conducted today, are very fair. There's a lot of checks and balances. There's a lot of protections, both for voters in in keeping their vote private and also verifying that somebody isn't voting multiple ballots and stuff like that. But anytime you come to any kind of change or keeping the electoral system the same, there's always challenges from the folks that maybe don't have as much confidence in elections. Do you guys have anything as part of kind of your reform that's going to give people confidence in the elections, increase confidence or even challenge their confidence? I mean, where are you guys at with your in your campaign with voter integrity and, and those kinds of election questions? Reagan, it's a good question, right? People feel like our democracy is in peril, right? We know that it's about 68% of Oregonians feel like our system of democracy is in peril. I mean, that's a profound figure. When you ask Democrats that question, it's 81% data from the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center. And we have to do something to address this. And I think that a constitutional amendment to protect voting rights and confer the right of all voters to participate in all taxpayer-funded elections is the key central question of the day. To get to your question about elections integrity, I think that It's an important conversation that our elections are fair and secure. But the fact of the matter right now is that nearly half of all young voters in Oregon and BIPOC feel like there's no point in voting because nothing ever changes when the two-party system dominates that our elections are rigged. That's the language that the Oregon Values and Beliefs Centers did a recent survey on, and nearly half of all young voters feel like our elections are currently rigged. 
So to have a constitutional amendment to protect voting rights and create a new and more fair system, I think it's a perfect fit for Oregon. We need to reclaim our trailblazer status, right? We were first in the nation with vote by mail, automatic voter registration. And if you go back 100 years ago, the right of citizen initiative petition. So it's really a great legacy in Oregon to build off of. And it's high time that we adopt open primaries. There's a few like sort of, I guess, democracy reform conversations happening in Oregon. This is one of them, all Oregon votes and open primary. There's also a lot of I would say action and conversation in the ranked choice voting space. They've done it in, I think Benton County is who did it first. And there's some interest in expanding that to the state level. Is ranked choice voting and all Oregon votes, are those in conflict and contrast or could they potentially work together? How do you see the intersection of those two ideas? I think that ranked choice voting and star voting and approval voting And preferential voting is a really important conversation that we should have. We need to move past the plurality system that we have now, where you pick one person and in a crowded field, you can have a winner emerge with 40% support of the electorate, but 60% of folks could could have chosen someone other than the winner, right? Mm -hmm. So we should move to a new voting method for sure. And we should also move to open primaries so that all voters who are legally eligible and registered to vote can receive a ballot in our elections. I don't think that's a wild thing to say anymore. So, And then there's the conversation about independent redistricting and campaign finance reform. So we sort of have four big things that haven't come to Oregon, but have come to many other states that care about promoting the principles of democracy. So I think it's high time that Oregonians have these questions asked and that we live our values. So I think ultimately one of the challenges, because there's probably gonna be some pushback against this one, either for, you know, for either for valid reasons or maybe more politically motivated reasons, right? But like, I think one of the main questions I think you're going to get is, With open primaries, especially the way primaries have worked for a lot of years is that each party is going to pick their own candidate, right? So Republicans get a state-funded primary. Democrats get a state-funded primary. The independent party did briefly, but then they lost that minor party status, which is a level that they would point out is set by the majority parties in the legislature, the threshold that they have to meet for that. But even as a minor party, Libertarian Party, Independent Party, they can all conduct their own primary processes and then put candidates on the ballot. And even candidates who are not affiliated have a threshold that they can meet. Again, that threshold's a little bit higher than a major political party. Now, the basis for that reasoning is a lot to do with, one, that those rules were written by the two major political parties, but two, you could, if you were trying to do it logically, you could say that the largest groups of voters should be able to pick their candidates, right? And those candidates should be able to move on to the the general election. And there's a lot of opportunity still for minor party candidates like Libertarians and Pacific Green Party candidates and those who are appearing on the ballot in the general election all the time, right? So I guess the, the question is going to be like, why is this ballot measure necessary to change the primary system when we have a primary system that, sure, maybe has too high a limit for a non-affiliated candidate or an uh, independent or other party candidate to make the general election ballot. But they can still do that if they follow the processes and we just need to lower the thresholds so that each party still gets to pick its own candidate 
instead of sending them all in an open primary to the general election, right? Does does that question make sense? I can kind of try to... Well, I hear what you're saying, Reagan. And I think that political parties should certainly be participants in our elections, but they shouldn't be gatekeepers. And right now they are. Taxpayer money goes to support the two-party control of our democracy. And those two candidates, whether through consciousness of voters or whether through earned media, those two party frontrunners get all the attention, all the play, and all the power. And so when a small sliver of the electorate is responsible for choosing who should be the front runners out of the two parties, it creates a very, very dysfunctional incentive for candidates who then become elected officials. So a full 88% of Oregonians did not voice support for either Tina Kotek or Christine Drazen coming out of the the public primary in May of 2020. That is a sign of a democracy on severe life support. When you talk about the taxpayer taxpayer funded part, you mean because the state pays for the administration of primary elections? The state of Oregon bankrolls are May primary elections that restrict independents from participating. So if you are an independent, you have to pay to print up the Republican ballot and the Democrat ballot, and you don't get access to either of those ballots. That's wrong. That's a fundamental unfairness. I, I have one quick uh, follow-up, Ben, before sure. yeah. if you have your next question. So I guess the, the next question that, that would logically follow that up is, how would the 2022 governor election, in your mind, theoretically play out? Let's just imagine. Let's mm. put your constitutional ballot measure into place hmm. what happens in the primary of that governor's election are tobias reed and tina kotek and christine drazen and some of her you know opponents are they all appearing on one single ballot that everyone gets to vote on in the primary is that kind of like the ideal scenario if you put this into place so the reason why one of the reasons why Betsy Johnson had to hang up her party registration and run non-affiliated is because she didn't stand a chance in the closed Democrat primary election, right? Because non-affiliated voters didn't get a say. And only one candidate can emerge from a closed party primary, right? So even though Tobias Reed received nearly twice the vote count of Christine Drazen, he was restricted from continuing to the general election. Tobias got double the votes in the primary that Christine so, Drazen got in her primary. So yeah. About 156,000 Oregon voters, 156K, wow. supported Tobias. About 85,000 voters supported Christine Drazen. So that's not a fair democracy, in my opinion, where a candidate can receive twice the vote total of someone else and be denied a chance to advance to the next round. It's a problem. It's a democracy problem that we are called to address. I feel very strongly about so to get back to Reagan's hypothetical scenario, IP16 is adopted and we, you know, uh, are in an alternate universe here where we have a fair primary system. Betsy Johnson could probably have left on her Democrat jersey and competed in the open primary. So you would have had Bob Tiernan and Christine Drazen and Bud Pierce and Jessica Gomez and Tobias Reed and Tina Kotek and Betsy Johnson side by side by side by side and the entire electorate including the 40% 
a million extra voters would have been able to weigh in on that contest. And I think that creates a really exciting process of democracy and elections where you have a very diverse field of candidates and a diverse field of voters. So disproportionately disenfranchised in that 40% independent voting groups are Hispanic voters, Asian American voters, voters under the age of 40, veterans, naturalized immigrants, and lower income people. And when you allow everyone a chance to have a say in our democracy, in our, in our primaries, I think you're going to create a much healthier form of government with a better governance structure and better outcomes on the policy side of things. That's ultimately why we have to adopt this is because we have to usher in better incentives for better policymaking. Then it's ultimately up to Oregonians and, as you said, the legislature to choose. OK, so how many of those candidates are going to go on to the general? Is it as many as get, you know, over a certain percentage? Is it ranked choice? You know, you rank them and then the top four appear, or is it just the top four vote getters under a first past the post system still where it's still you only get to pick one candidate, but the top four that get the most votes move on? Then that's just up to the legislature, if I'm understanding you right. Yeah. So whenever there's a constitutional amendment adopted, there are a number of statutes that need to be adjusted to conform law to make sure that it's falling within the framework of our state constitution. And so the legislature would get to design what type of an elections framework we adopt to conform our statute to the IP16 language. So the most clear example that you could point to would be Alaska's system. Right, which was yeah. recently modeled by Nevada in a recent ballot measure there, which voters just approved of. And for folks who are interested in this, Catherine Gale, we've had on the podcast before to talk about final. I think that it was final four in Alaska, but now that they prefer final five. I do think just a quick note on this before I go to my next question. I'm kind of thinking, thinking along here. I do think that it would be. And Reagan, I'm kind of curious because you're you're a skeptic on all things that change our <laughs> our current our current arrangement. But let's say it's the gubernatorial primary of um, 2022, and you've got, I mean, conceivably 20 something semi legitimate candidates, at least semi legitimate, and then you probably got a handful who are you know not as serious. If you don't have some kind of instant runoff or ranked choice or at least more than a few you know four or five people going on you could theoretically see people with very low levels of support because you've got even more candidates to spread the vote around where you've got you know candidates with like extremely small numbers am i thinking about this incorrectly like if you've got 25 candidates theoretically if we don't change other rules you could have a candidate who gets like you know, 8% and a candidate who gets 7% going on because the vote is dispersed across so many candidates? You ask a good question, and it gets to the question of what should be the candidate filing requirements. And mm. in the Democratic primary and in the Republican primary, the filing requirements are incredibly low. I think True. it's like $50 to pay yeah. to <laughs> qualify and maybe 100 signatures, I think, for governor versus mm. non-affiliated candidates. It's 26,000 signatures versus 100 on the party side, 26,000 on the independent candidate side, and 100 on the two-party side. So 26,000 have... for the general election. Is that right? For Betsy, because she wasn't coming with a party label, there's just a an outstanding clause that says if you get this many 
signatures to get, to get access to the general election ballot, right? right? For Republicans, theoretically, the limit's lower because you have to make it through a primary. And so that primary kind of approves you for the general election. And so you can't get direct access to general election as a Republican. You have to go through and win a primary and a Democrat, too. So right now we have a very uneven system. There are three different channels that you can take to get to the general election ballot, whether it be through a minor party, a major party, or qualifying by signature. And by the way, there's no fee option to get onto the ballot in the general for independent candidates, but you can get a fee option for the primary if you're wearing a two-party jersey. So the legislature really should create a unified system where all candidates have the same filing deadlines, filing requirements and thresholds for qualifying. Right. And if you bump that up to back to your question of having 20 candidates or 30 candidates in a unified primary or a, in an integrated primary, if you bumped it up, then it would probably improve our election system if you could have fewer unserious and uninterested candidates filing to run. So we know, right, many candidates file to run and they don't file a uh, candidate committee, right? They don't file a voter's guide statement. They don't do any events. They don't do any door knocking. They don't do anything. They just file and they're just occupying space on the ballot. And so if we were to address and modernize our election system, you'd probably look at creating thresholds that were significant enough that you would only feature serious names on that primary election ballot mm, that makes sense okay now we're going to talk about what i think is when it comes to open primaries conversations the elephant in the room in oregon which is in... wait is there no donkey in this room ben i, I just want to be fair there's, <laughs> there's only one. an elephant in this room <laughs> there's one my uh, my six-year-old daughter would vote for a giraffe in the room so maybe that... <laughs> there you go that could the be giraffe the in the room 2014 measure 90 Measure 90, I'm going to read from Ballotpedia. Thank you, Ballotpedia. The measure would have created a top two system of general election voting where all voters receive the same primary ballot that shows all candidates, regardless of political party. Candidates would have been allowed to include on the ballot their party registration. And if they've been endorsed by a party, the top two candidates, regardless of political party, would then be voted on in the general election. So that was the last time that open primaries was an option for voters in Oregon to vote for. Some It had bipartisan support. Your former boss, Dennis Richardson, a Republican, Governor John Kitzhaber, a Democrat, both supported it. It raised a bunch of money. It says here it raised over $9 million to support that campaign. However, the opposition side was also large bipartisan coalition, labor unions. I think both the Democrats and the Republicans, the sort of like progressive organizations, I'm not sure I'm looking to see if the conservative organizations are on here. Many legislators, they raised 1.4 million, so massively out fundraised. And then, of course, the results were lopsided. The open primaries proposal failed. I think 68% voted no. So my question is like, first of all, are there substantive differences in the approaches of these two measures? And if so, what are they? And if not, and even if so, why do you believe the politics have shifted sufficiently for this to have a path to viability in 2024? Complicated question, sorry, but you get what I'm going for. In Oregon, voters were asked the question for the top two, and that was a statutory ballot measure rather than this being a constitutional ballot measure. And that was specifically creating a top two system, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so this is not specifically creating a top two system. This is a different 
this is a different concept entirely that is going to protect voting rights in our constitution, which at this moment in time is very important to voters who feel like our democracy is in peril, right? So mm -hmm. if you rewind the clock two decades ago, Gallup showed that 56% of voters believes that the two existing parties did an adequate job representing voters. And in 2021, it's 33% of voters, right? So 62% of voters favor the creation of a new political party. There is a sentiment that the two-party system, the two-party framework that we have today isn't working. And the landscape has shifted dramatically since 2014. Of course, you had Trump elected in 2016. And in it was in that cycle that you had the Hillary-Bernie rancor. Mm -hmm. And in this latest cycle, we see the Democratic National Committee, right, the National Democrat Party, they were injecting money into Republican primaries to support pro-Trump candidates. So we have right now a system in which there are very unhealthy activities that the two parties are conducting in. And I believe that voters feel that way incredibly. And I don't believe that. I mean, we... We know that, right, through a lot of this really important data. Eight in 10 Oregonians believe our economy is rigged to the advantage of the rich and powerful. And that economic inequality since 2014 has only exploded as we've come through COVID, as we've come through a lot of the growth of the 2010s, right? The economic growth that's been really disproportionately attributed, right, to the um, to high income earners. And so, what I believe is that we are at a moment in time where voting rights and our democracy are on the minds of almost every voter out there. And almost every voter out there feels the sense that the system is broken. Our economic system isn't working. Our governance and democracy systems aren't working. 20% of Americans approve of the job of Congress is doing. I think it was 19% maybe last time I checked, right? It's at an all-time low. Confidence in public institutions like our criminal justice system, public schools, our healthcare system, they are at all-time lows. Social cohesion is a huge factor that we have to think about when it relates to political violence that Portland has been front and center to witness the extremes and the radicalization. And I think that Oregonians of good conscience want to see this more than anything else. Mm. Okay, so I also want to talk about politicians. And I don't use that term derisively. Well, some do. We just had an episode with John Taponia where he was talking about, or we, we talked about like the need for politicians to do and say hard things when it comes to housing and homelessness in Portland, for example. And so I'm curious from your perspective for this measure, Catherine Gale, when we had her on, she talks about the incentives that politicians have. You've alluded to this a little bit in your comments. Do you think this proposal would either A, attract different kinds of politicians to step forward and offer their names? Um, do you think it will change which politicians win elections? And then the third is like, do you think it will change the incentives of politicians who operate in the system? So let's start, let's do one at a time there because that was too much. But yeah, I'm kind of curious how you think politicians will interact or change with this new system that you're proposing. Sure, sure. So I served on the school board at Mount Hood Community College, which is a nonpartisan office. Many 
local level offices for city council or county commissioner or your school board are nonpartisan races. And that's where many people get their start in elected office is at that local level. Mm -hmm. And there is a problem that many elected officials at that local level experience, which is the weight of the world is on their shoulders. Their constituents are very close to home and feel like they need to be solving things in their community and their hands are tied and they can't solve things in their community because the state and the national level politicians, which are partisan, are really responsible for a lot of the infrastructure that undergirds our social system right our governance structure mm -hmm. and so a lot of elected officials at the local level they don't seek higher office even though they are volunteer dedicated civil servants right they realize that in order to seek higher office they have to throw on a jersey and they have to engage in a lot of the practices that many people find detestable right so i believe that you do see a different kind of candidate emerge when you create open primaries look one of my personal heroes is a guy named Kerry Timchak, and he hung up his party registration. He has no viable pathway to elected office, even though he would make an outstanding public servant, in my opinion. And many, many Oregonians would love to see him in a position in which he can really do some good. And there's just no path for him without throwing on a jersey. We should note uh, Kerry Timchuk, executive director of the Oregon Historical Society, and he was chief of staff to which United States senator? Gordon Smith. Gordon Smith. And also Bob Dole? He, he did worked, something for Bob Dole. He worked as legal counsel and speech writer for Bob Dole and was on that presidential campaign. We should definitely ask Kerry to come on the podcast. But OK, so so part one, you're saying potentially this does actually change who raises their hand and puts their name forward to run. Do you think this new system would change who wins these elections? I think that politicians are very smart people, and I think that they know how to campaign. And I don't think that this is going to hurt anyone who is currently serving in office as long as they are able to adjust their language, their messaging, their platform, and their outreach efforts to appeal to a broad cross-section of the electorate. And how is that a wild thing to say, that candidates running for office should try to appeal to the broadest cross-section of the electorate, of the constituents they seek to represent? Elected officials would be wise to do outreach to all groups who represent all political stripes rather than just the narrow folks that get them there. And right now they're just speaking to the narrow group of the party base that gets them to office. My last question is about incentives, which you just described a little bit, but describe the incentives of a politician trying to win an open primary. Like how are, how are they campaigning? Are their messages different than they are under the current system? Like I can imagine a few ways where it would be pretty markedly different, but I'm curious, curious your take on that. Well, let's just rewind. Before the election, there's the governance process, right? And many candidates are incumbents who are seeking re-election. So we should probably mm -hmm. level set there. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us who are in the political world realize that the campaign for the next cycle begins on the, the, the first <laughs> day after the election, right? And so a lot of campaigning is actually done through 
the policymaking process, right? It's an interesting connection that goes on there. And so I think that candidates, before they become candidates for re-election, they are making laws that affect all of us Oregonians across the state. And I think that you are changing their calculus when they're taking votes, when they're offering amendments, when they're giving their support to certain concepts, or they're deciding not to focus so much on writing this bill because they really want to focus on that bill. I think open primaries gives elected officials freedom to really focus on the issues that they want to focus on that they know matter but maybe they only matter to independence or disproportionately to this, to independence, right? So I think what we'll see with open primaries is much better incentive structure for existing elected officials to have the freedom to compromise and work with members of all kinds of parties, whether they be Democrat, Republican, independent, or other parties. I think that what we're going to see here is a much broader ability to address things that are pragmatic. I think the legislature in Oregon is really good at solving smaller problems and tailoring and tinkering at the edges. But in terms of tackling like big, hard and difficult concepts, I think that the legislature is really mired in dysfunction. We see walkouts. We see we see an inability to come together to talk out issues, to compromise on behalf of Oregon voters. So, Michael, uh, my last question for you is actually, well, it's two questions. The first is, what's next for the measure and where can people go to learn more about it? Well, our website is alloregonvotes.org. So that's a pretty easy name to remember. And what's next for us is just a really exciting roadmap ahead. We expect that we'll get to um, our final approval to circulate come April or May. And then we're going to be hitting the ground running spring, summer, fall into the summer of 2024. So we have more than 15 months to gather signatures statewide once we make it through our ballot uh, titling process. And that's our biggest hurdle that we have to clear right now. And then by July 5th of 2024, we'll turn in our signatures. We need about 200,000 signatures to qualify this thing. So wow. it's a ambitious figure and we are charged up to get this done. So cool. So Michael, actually, I'm going to ask you one quick, quick one, just because I think listeners might want to know this one. Can you tell us a little bit? Are you a registered member of a political party right now? And regardless of your answer to that question, you've filed to run in the past. Can you see yourself filing to run for office in the future, regardless of outcome of uh, of this measure? I don't know if I'll ever seek elected office again. I was very proud and honored to serve on the school board at Mount Hood Community College. And after seeing a little bit of how state politics works, I think that it may be something I return to in my elder years, maybe Later when years. I have <laughs> when I have more wisdom and experience and time and patience and everything else under my belt. And I've raised my two girls. So that's what I'm focused on right now. It's a very smart answer, Michael. And, uh, <laughs> as you point out, Ben was not very smart to run for office as young as he was, but, you know, can't be helped sometimes. And regarding my party registration, I'm a Democrat. Oh, you are a Democrat. 
Well, I have to affiliate with a party in order to participate <laughs> in the primary. So I don't want my vote to be suppressed. So I got to throw on a jersey temporarily so I can have a say in this election process, right? So I'm one of wait. the voters that hops around, right? Michael's a, say, I'll classify him as a part-time Democrat then. He's, he's, <laughs> part-time. He's a part-time Democrat. Who's, who's worked for a Republican Secretary of State. There you go. Who, there ran, you go. Who, who ran for state legislature as an IPO party member. And so I think um, I always vote for the person, not the party. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Michael, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, we'll we'll talk to Reagan in later episodes to see if you've won him over uh, his his skepticism on changing changing Oregon's democracy. But uh, you've made a valiant effort, and uh, we appreciate uh, the time you've given us today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys. Take care. <laughs>